0: Have we ever had a first week of spring this delightful? I wonder if we should do a story on that, Jane Cahoon. This week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston for another discussion of the news. You got to admit, this has been a spectacular start this spring.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, it's incredible. I was painting the kid's swing set last night because I got to do that every year, and I was like... It's like seven o'clock and it's, you know, T-shirt weather. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've started some springs where it's like in the 30s and it's been every day since spring started. And it's, it looks like it's going to continue for a while. So good to see. Let's get started. Why did a federal judge throw out Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost the lawsuit against the Census Bureau? Doesn't this judge know Ohio needs to get past its gerrymandering? Jane, this is disturbing because we thought We are on a path to clear up gerrymandering. This makes it
2: harder. Well, it does, but it doesn't make it impossible. This federal judge basically said he couldn't order someone to jump higher, run faster, or lift more than she is physically capable, meaning that he can't order the Census Bureau to do something that it says it's impossible to do. He also said that that Davios, the attorney general, had not shown that Ohio had been harmed by this delay in the release of the census information. And Yost, of course, is appealing. And he said that if the state doesn't have standing to challenge the Census Bureau's decision to arbitrarily ignore a statutory deadline, then no one does. So this is where we are right now. They, we normally get this information that we need for redistricting by March 31st, but because of the pandemic that, you know, they, we might not get it until September. So, you know, the judge said we could use other data if we wanted to, some sort of alternative data to figure this out. Or lawmakers and others have already talked about just counting on the courts to be flexible with us, that, that you know, hopefully we can get it done after we get the information in September, but in time for next year's primaries.
0: Okay, but one, it's a constitutional amendment that (laughs) sets these rules. So it's not like you could just fudge the Ohio Constitution. It's weird how many people are saying, well, the judges are showing leniency because it's off. It's the Constitution. I mean, if we started doing that with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, well, let's 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 go down there a little bit. It's a slippery slope. I, look, I get the judge saying there's a precedent that says I can't force people to jump higher than they can jump or lift more than they can lift. But to say that Ohio hasn't shown it would be harmed. I don't get that at all. I mean, that's what this is about.
3: <laughs> so well, the Well, I'm not a it, lawyer.
2: Leila Man, i know, I'm
3: just jumping in here. Sorry. <laughs> Jane, when is the first deadline for
2: I, I think I was it is
3: it September that the first it's de- September 1st
2: for, for drawing the then- district? Yeah, and then there's another one on September 30th. Okay, and that's so, under this new redistricting process that that voters approved to make it fairer and to try to get rid of gerrymandering. How long does it typically take to draw these maps? Is well, as any, long as it takes that? to get
0: into a hotel room and with nobody yeah. <laughs>
2: around. <laughs> I mean, they can do so much with technology to to figure these things out, right? So it, it's it's hard to say. In the past, when when was really severely gerrymandering you've got people from congress you know we had john boehner when he was the house speaker mm-hmm. weighing in on this telling him whose district he wanted to be safe and uh, you know all sorts of of meddling like that so it, it's hard to say
0: i got an idea as soon as the date is in give it to rich exner
2: i was okay, just gonna say that i was just gonna say We'll do it in a day. I mean, look, he did it already. (laughs) I know. some test maps, you know. Rich Rich
3: can spit out like six versions of it and, you know, they can vote on which one they like. And uh, that's it. I mean, Rich is so adept at
0: that. And we won't even have an expense for a hotel room. It's the perfect way (laughs) to go.
2: Yeah. Okay, Chris. So Rich has to do that. And then he's got to do a (laughs) weather story for your little... Pet project there, and and then he's got to do coronavirus data analysis too. So, yeah, for, can we pri- clone him or what?
0: I, I wish, but he's very he's very loath to share his knowledge with others because he knows <laughs> how valuable he is. So, yeah, he's his priority today is to explain where the surge is coming from, kind of based on our conversation on yesterday's podcast. Let's move on. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How lopsided were the votes to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of legislation curbing his power to issue health orders? And what happens next? Jane Cahoon, this seemed inevitable—the first override of a veto—but it is disturbing.
2: Yeah, the Republicans had no problem overriding the the governor, and judging from some of the floor debate that I watched in in both chambers some of them were just downright defiant and and derisive when it when it came to Dewine's assertions and the assertions of Democrats that this bill was unconstitutional. I mean there was actually applause after the vote in the house. That the house h- had a 62 to 35 override vote. I think they needed 60 votes and the Senate voted 23 to 10 which was overwhelming to to override. And as you said, first time that a DeWine veto has been overridden. So you asked what happens next. This bill takes effect in 90 days, so they have a little bit of time. But, you know, you've got to expect a legal challenge. I, I believe it was Matt Huffman, the Senate president, said that uh, he expected a, a court challenge here. But what we're trying to sort out is, you know, what that would look like. It's, okay. it's not clear if that would be a suit filed by DeWine or or some citizens Someone else, it's also not clear that, uh, you know, Attorney General Dave Yost, like in such a battle between lawmakers and the administration, like who he would represent or whether they'd have to get, you know, outside counsel for that. Well, I think
0: I think the attorney general is required to, to defend the duly passed law of the state, which whether he agrees with it or not, I think we've had previous yeah. cases of that. So he would have to mount a defense, whether he hired somebody to do it or did it himself. But it could it'll pit the attorney general versus the governor, you know, a year before there's an election where they're both on the ballot. It could yeah, be right. what's sad about this is this is a vote against science. This yeah. is a vote for populist nonsense for a tiny fraction of Ohioans who don't want to wear masks and stomp their feet. The, yeah. the huge majority of the state wants what the wine did. They respect mm-hmm. what the wine did. Absolutely. Dwine has saved Ohioans' lives by what he did. So go ahead, Layla. Toss- I,
3: if they set out to find a way to make a pandemic a whole lot worse, I feel like they've achieved it. I mean, the, stripping the governor of the ability to contain a virus while there's still time is insane. Encouraging people to <laughs> sue over public health orders, that's insane.
2: You know, Layla I, I was, and Chris, you should have heard the debate on the floor. Oh, These lawmakers were. Adamant about how no, they're not preventing Dewine from doing anything. Of course, they can just go in there and overturn what he did. And they were, Uh, you know, one of them took umbrage at at he heard a comment from somebody that you know, vaccinations give us freedom. He said, "No, that's not so. We have our freedom under the Constitution." I mean, this is a real ideological, you know. And then you had Amelia Sykes, the Democratic minority leader in the House, who who was just like, hey, guys, you know, you don't do public health very well. You know, you don't even wear a mask. <laughs> right. and she's like, right. get, get out of get out of this lane. You know, right,
3: right, right. You know, when Bill Sites said, you know, that it's it's not perfect, you know, it, the, the bill isn't perfect yeah. and that lawmakers can change it down the line to allow authorities to isolate someone who comes into Ohio from a pandemic hotspot while waiting for them to be diagnosed down the line. Like when, when Ebola arrives at the airport, that's when they're talking about amending it. Oh, good. Well, and
0: one of DeWine's points is that this stops them from being able to quarantine someone who has been exposed to. Yeah. Pandemic kind of disease. This
3: is going to be just,
0: it'll be gummed up in the courts and there's a good chance the Supreme court where there are cooler heads, may reject this as a ridiculous usurpation of the governor's power. I hope we so. hope
1: so anyway. Th- this is Laura Johnston. We're tr- we're working on a story about what lessons we've learned from the pandemic and one of them, you know, is how badly public health has been handled in the past, you know, 100 years practically, and now we're going to make it worse. So instead of making it better, we're going to make it worse.
0: Well, think yeah. about th- think about 1918 where they come out of the pandemic and they decide we need a better thing. They create county health boards. Which are not working that well today, but it was a response to we need organized public health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're coming out of this pandemic the complete opposite. We're right. like and the, we're like the, the
1: Flintstones here. The, the text messages that you got on your account, Chris, were basically saying we want a more centralized reaction, not reaction, but plan for public health that comes through the federal government, the state, and the local, that they're all talking to each other, that they make sense. And this is like, never mind, no plan at all.
0: This is the result of the gerrymandered districts, which is why it's so sad that the Census Bureau won in its case with Dave Yost. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland City Councilman Joe Jones told a fascinating tale of a chase at a committee hearing in recent week. What are the details, Layla? You told that tale yesterday with some perspective.
3: I did, yeah. So, so last week, the, the Cleveland City Council Public Safety Committee met for this three and a half hour long marathon session to grill police chief Calvin Williams about the city's controversial high speed pursuit policy. And I got around to catching up on that on Monday. I was, you know, listening to the the hearing while doing other work and things like that, thinking I might get, you know, an angle for a column or something when halfway through Councilman Joe Jones starts telling the story that was just incredible and I'm looking at his colleagues and none of them are even reacting to it. They were all just deadpan. And the story goes like this. Jones said that one day he got a call from a business owner in his ward who told him that she had just witnessed a robbery at a dollar store. And she said she tried calling the cops, but that they were tied up and couldn't get there. So she decided to jump in her car and follow these two guys who were who were on foot. She told Jones that she had to go, though. She didn't she couldn't stick around. And so he agreed to show up and take over the chase. And he tells counsel that he followed them to a house on East 142nd Street, where he says that they took a lunch break before heading down to Kinsman, where Jones said they robbed another dollar store. And he said the whole time he was on the phone with the police and the cops finally showed up at the end and they chased the two guys. And he concluded the story by saying, but can you believe it? They still didn't catch them." And his overarching point was really that the lack of police presence in his ward is leaving the neighborhood at the mercy of criminals and that residents are paying for services that they're not receiving and that they're being victimized all the time. And those are all really good points. But I mean, holy cow. I'm like, is anyone else listening to this story? He's he just accused the police of failing to respond to calls for help while he chased these robbers for an hour and that the negligence essentially opened the door for a second robbery that day. It was just this incredible story. So I that's really. W- that's problem,
0: yeah. is it it does strain the credibility. So what do you what do you think happened here?
3: You know, so I, I wanted to know more. I called Jones. I asked the uh, the Cleveland Police Department to help track down the reports from that day. His colleagues think of him as a storyteller. And and I suspected that might have been why no one was listening to him while he was laying out this harrowing tale. So I was trying to verify the story with with the police reports, and I still have had no luck with that. Jones didn't give a statement to police because he says they didn't ask for one. And anyway, long story short, I, I wrote the column. Uh, I think it was it was fair and elevating his really strong points, but I also needed to look upon the details of his story with some caution because he was making some pretty strong claims against the police department, and I couldn't just accept that as outright truth. So. You know, he was upset. He felt that I was kind of calling him a liar, insinuating that he didn't, he wasn't being, uh, that he had embellished the story. He called me with a business owner yesterday, the business owner who he was with that day, and she said that she did actually call him for help. So, you know, the CPD spokesperson said she thinks that one of the reasons why it's been difficult to find a police report on these robberies is because they might have been shoplifting, not robbing the places. And that's a completely different scenario. Robbery is taking property through force or threat or intimidation. And if these guys just ran in and grabbed a bunch of stuff off the shelves, that's shoplifting. That's a misdemeanor and a much lower priority for police, which does if that if that is the scenario. That does mean that Joe Jones was embellishing it a bit at the committee table. Well, so, and
0: it also raises questions why he would chase them. I mean, he's really going to spend an hour chasing down shopkeepers. Right, hunters. right. It's kind of I mean, silly. From
3: what I understand, and and Joe Jones has told me these stories and others have said it's true that he he is an interventionist. I mean, he is not afraid to get up in people's faces. He he does approach drug dealers and say, please move it along. I don't want you in my neighborhood, which is a very dangerous thing. But he feels like there's not enough attention, police attention on these things in his ward. And I don't know. I'm still I'm still waiting to get to the the heart of what exactly happened that day. I am keeping an open mind. I want to see what the reports say. If it's shoplifting, I'm I don't know. I don't know if we should write another column uh, or, you know, I just I don't know. What do we'll you think?
0: See. It's a good piece. <laughs> I, I recommend people check it out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With traffic climbing steadily at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport, how close are we to the number of passengers we saw before the coronavirus pandemic began? Laura Johnson, you're a contributor to some of these numbers. You flew recently.
1: I did. I did. But it wasn't the weekend we're talking about. So this past weekend was the most traffic they've seen in a year at Hopkins International Airport. Nowhere near the levels before the pandemic, though. So From Friday through Sunday, we were looking at about 57,000 passengers. That's still 30% lower than 81,000 passengers who traveled the weekend of March 6th through the 8th, 2020. That was the last weekend before global travel. And what's interesting is I actually flew through the airport that weekend, and it was kind of like the world was about to end, right? But Cleveland's actually ahead of the national average when it comes to recovery. We're about 49% of 2019 levels compared to 44% nationwide. And we've got about 18 to 20,000 people passing through Hopkins Terminal daily, which in the depths of the pandemic, we were looking at a thousand. So that's doing better, but still a long way to go before they're at the the previous levels.
0: But you did find when you were there at 530 on a Friday morning, the place was packed.
1: It was absolutely a zoo. And yeah, it wasn't even 6 a.m. And when you're like at an airport that early, you forget how early it is that the rest of the world isn't up. But everybody was wearing masks. I didn't really see many people double masking. There were lines to buy, you know, the the bagels and, and Dunkin' Donuts and people were sitting in seats. They were mostly sitting one seat apart from each other. But, you know, that's not six feet. What I thought was funny was, you know, Southwest, you have to line up one through 60 to get on because you don't have assigned seats. Well, they weren't letting anybody stand up in those lines because of social distancing. But then you get on the plane and you're The entire plane is packed, so I'm not sure what that was accomplishing. All
0: right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Lordstown Motors the purported electric truck maker at the former Lordstown Auto Plant for real, or is it a sham? Jen Cahoon, I've been suspicious of this since it started, and after reading Andrew Tobias's fully reported story, I don't know what to
2: think. I I honestly don't know either, but Andrew talked to analysts who expressed skepticism about this, as well as a bunch of politicians who expressed optimism that this company is going to be part of a renaissance for the Mahoning Valley that's going to help transform it into the Voltage Valley. And, you know, it's been plugged, I'm sorry about the pun, by <laughs> everyone from state lawmakers to Congress people to Governor Mike DeWine and even former President Donald Trump. It's, it's already gotten Twenty million dollars in in tax credits, but recently, you know, just as that they are now supposedly gearing up to produce their first vehicles, that this company has been well kind of politicized, but it's also faced a bunch of questions about its viability. Its stock took a big dive, March twelfth, after this prominent investment firm that that is betting against their success, a a, a company called Hindenburg Research released this scathing report that said the company had misled its investors, both on the demand and its production capabilities. And now there's an inquiry from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and there's a shareholder lawsuit. So, uh, you know, it's it's too long to go into all of this, but people should really read Andrew's story because, you know, we he talks to people who've been in the plant and say, it's for real, you know. I've seen it with my own eyes, and then others who say, "Eh, you know, they're not even testing, you know, the proper amount of vehicles." You know, there there was a report about some disaster when they when they did a test run on one of them. But anyway, it's it's
0: well, who knows the 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 place where it has the highest level of bogosity. Is where they said, We never meant that pre orders are firm orders.
2: Right, <laughs> right, you right.
0: About? They claimed you had all these pre orders, you were going to sell all these trucks, but people yeah. misinterpreted you when you said that, that that was not real. I mean,
2: yeah, clearly that... those have been inflated. And I don't know how unusual that is. I mean, I keep looking back to a company like Tesla. I mean, remember all of the viability questions around Tesla and look where they are now. So, you know, Yeah, that's true. I
0: I don't know what to think. I I just I'm very suspicious. We'll have to. time will tell. But I wonder if Rob Portman ends up regretting taking that White House picture with one of the trucks. Yes.
3: (laughs) Can I just say that? uh,
0: Layla Atassi, who fails every time to introduce herself.
3: I don't know how to do this. (laughs) It's very ironic that Hindenburg Research is the firm that (laughs) produced that given given that the. They uh, it was referred to as a prototype Inferno. Uh, I just needed to get the phrase prototype Inferno. Yeah,
2: into this I should have <laughs> said something about that. You're right, Layla. Thank you. <laughs> All right. You
0: are listening to this week in the CLE. If I don't have a reaction to the coronavirus vaccine, does it mean I have less protection than those who do react? Layla Tassi, this is a bogus question because I did have a reaction and I'm disappointed in what you're about to say.
3: (laughs) Well, there seems to be no correlation between the strength of your immunity and the side effects that you experience from the shot. More than half of the clinical trial subjects didn't experience side effects, but the shots were still 95 percent effective. So experts told Evan McDonald, our reporter, that side effects are more common in younger patients. And uh, that the immune system has two responses related to the shot, that there's innate immunity, which kicks in shortly after you get the shot and is sort of that first line of defense. And that's like the arm pain that you feel and the flu-like symptoms. And then there's adaptive immunity, which is the body learning to protect itself with antibodies. And that takes a couple of weeks to develop that. So basically, don't freak out if you don't have a strong, immediate immune response to the vaccine. The body is working as it should. And uh, it should be you'll be good.
0: Well, and the sad thing is if you do have a reaction like I did, my body started cooking that night. It means when you get the second shot, you're likely to have a bad time. I would much prefer to be one of those people who had no reaction like my my wife and most people I know. Anyway, good stuff. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How did things go on the first day of the mass vaccination center at Kent State University? And what is causing the delay? of the drive through vaccination clinic planned in Summit County. Laura Johnston, we talk a lot about what's going on in Cleveland. Let's talk about some of the outlying areas.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it went really smoothly at Kent, but that the Summit County Fairgrounds, they are at the mercy of a lack of supply. At Kent State on Tuesday, they distributed more than 2,000 vaccines. It's the Portage County Combined General Health District that's running that. So far, it's about 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. each week, but this is just once a week. Their goal is 4,000 vaccines during that day. And future times are going to depend on vaccine supply. Also, which vaccine they're going to be giving out is also dependent on the week. So you don't know if you're even going to have to come back for another shot. But they're using the Portage County Medical Reserve Corps to administer those. And then down the road in Summit County, the state-sponsored site at the fairgrounds was supposed to open on Monday. Now we're talking an unspecified date in early April. They're supposed to get about 5,000 vaccines a week for at least eight weeks, but they don't have a lot of details, including what kind of vaccine they'll be giving out and when that'll exactly start. They had to move from Chapel Hill Mall because of development there. So there's a lot of questions, including about transportation. They're even talking about if people come on a bus, they'll just get the vaccine givers, I guess, the volunteers to come onto the bus and give the shot there so they don't make everybody get off and then get back on.
0: Let me ask this. Given how well things have gone at the Wolstein Center, wouldn't we have been better off if we just had FEMA inoculate the whole country? (laughs) I mean, think about it. Yeah. Everybody who goes there raves about how great it is because it is. They're they're, they're efficient. They know what they're doing. You know, this is the Army. They're really good at logistics and things like this. You know, the, the Kent one sounds good, but it's once a week. The Summit County, they can't get the shots. Why didn't we just have FEMA And the army do it all
1: right. Because, Chris, uh, Governor DeWine wanted to make sure it was available in every county at thirteen hundred different places that we could all search for one. I mean, but he
0: but he couldn't he wouldn't have been able to make that choice if the federal government had just said the hell with the states. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Look, look how much politics look at the politics that have been involved in other states and maybe in Ohio, where the shots have been steered to the constituencies, the support The party of the governor of that state. I mean, if the if the federal government just said, "Army, go do this," I don't know. I think we would have had a lot more efficiency. They know what they're doing.
1: I Um, agree, but that would have taken some leadership back in the fall.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, you got look. you You can Donald Trump deserves a lot of criticism for what he did throughout the pandemic. The one thing he did right was he partnered with the pharmaceutical companies, and that's why we're all yes. getting the vaccine. It's he- very true.
1: He- Other countries are not getting it the same way.
0: Right. So there is
1: no infrastructure for delivery. For delivery so. No,
0: no. But looking back, oh, maybe that's what we need to do next time is just get the states the hell out of the way and have FEMA do it because it's working. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much extra time are Ohioans getting to pay their state income taxes this year because of the pandemic? Jane Coon, I don't get why we need extra time. We're all stuck at home. We have lots of time to do this. Why are they delaying it?
2: Oh, I wasn't prepared to answer that part of the question. I thought you just wanted to know what the delay, what the, you know, new date was. No, I want to rant uh, and rave. That's what we do here. <laughs> well, I think they're still sorting things out, you know, and and people, you know, all the problems they've had with, you know, getting the unemployment out and and whether that's going to be taxable. I think those things they have complicated things but uh the the new deadline is going to be May 17th instead of the usual April 15th that matches what the feds already announced the IRS for the federal income taxes and it was expected because you know the state tax forms are tied to the adjusted gross income figure that you use on your on your federal form so it's not quite like a year ago when when both of those deadlines were moved to July 15th you know which was the first time in more than a half century that that uh, that deadline was moved like that. But do,
0: do we expect that RITA and and all of the municipal income taxes will fall in line with this as well? Because a they, lot yes,
2: they do affect uh, RITA anyway. The RITA told uh, Rich Exner that the municipal deadline is also going to be May seventeenth. They said they're working on updating their website and other communication channels. Um, I think the city of Cleveland, the the central the Central um, collecting agency. Yeah, they didn't. I don't think they got back to to Rich on that. But maybe one important thing is that the first quarter uh, estimated income tax payment for 2021 that some filers have to do is not affected by this extension and still has to be made April 15th. That's the I'm talking about state there, and those are often required for self-employed people.
0: Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. That's going to do it. So, Jane, do we expect much news today from uh, Mike DeWine at his briefing? He's having one, right?
2: Yes, I believe he is. Well, you know, we'll we'll get the confirmation of that new number, coronavirus number, per 100,000 cases. We'll see if Rich Exner's uh, prediction was on the money like it usually is, that that's, things are flat. He might say more about this uh, veto override and perhaps what steps he intends to take to <laughs> challenge that law. I don't know there's always something. Maybe we'll get more news on these variants and and why we're seeing this leveling off of cases instead of a decline.
0: Yeah. In the last briefing, they did say that they had seen some of the variants. And usually by the time they see it, it's much more prevalent. I wonder if that's what we're seeing. I can't wait till Rich looks at the counties where Ohio might be having a problem because I I get back
3: to what I said. Yeah. I think,
2: you know, we're seeing more of a flattening than a surge. Like, Michigan is really seeing a surge. Ours isn't wouldn't be characterized that way yet anyway, but it but you know, it's not it's not going down anymore.
0: Well, a quarter of Ohio residents <clears throat> are in in the vaccination process or have been vaccinated, so you would think that that would help slow it. Okay, We'll have to see what he says. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news.